Welcome to Harmonia Uncut, the podcast that takes you to early music performances you may have missed. I'm Wendy Gillespie, and in this podcast, we're going to listen to a Bach cantata at St. Thomas Church. That would be St. Thomas Lutheran Church in Bloomington, Indiana, where on February 26, 2017, Christ unser Herr zum Jordan kam, BWV 7, was the fifth of six cantatas presented in the seventh season of the Bloomington Bach Cantata Project. The BBCP is a collaboration of students, faculty, and alumni of the Jacobs School of Music with visiting artists and local early music professionals. Its mission is to perform cantatas of J.S. Bach in a manner modeled on Bach's own performances. Each cantata has a different music director, often one of the performers and it has become the practice of the Bloomington Bach Cantata Project to perform each cantata twice, with a lecture in between the two performances that often changes the way we hear the piece, and indeed the way it is played the second time. An extremely unscientific survey interestingly reveals that the second performances tend to be very, very slightly slower than the first. Time doesn't allow for both performances of BWV7 on this podcast. We'll hear the first performance of Christ unser Herr zum Jordan kam and the lecture that followed.
It's February. So here's a cantata for the date June 24th. <laughs> uh, that date was observed in several ways uh, in Bach's time. Uh, it was one of four dates that divided the year into quarters. St. Michael's Day, the 29th of September, Christmas, the 25th of December, the Feast of the Annunciation on the 25th of March, and this date that we're talking about, June 24th. Now, June 24th is approximately the summer solstice each year, and it was celebrated as that, especially the night before uh, June 24th. Uh, there's a Shakespeare play that takes place this evening, and that reminds us that the, the name, one of the names for this day is Midsummer's Day, right? Midsummer's Day. Um, well, it's Midsummer's Day, and Midsummer Night is the eve of. Um, on the Christian religious calendar, this is St. John's Day, the Feast of John the Baptist. And that day crops up in all kinds of interesting places. It's what they're singing about uh, at the beginning of Act 1 and Act 2 of the Meister Singer von Nürnberg. First there's the chorale, which is actually kind of modeled on, on the chorale here. Dazu did a Highland come, and then at the beginning of the second act, all the apprentices are singing Johannistag, and it's set on this day in 16th century Nuremberg. Uh, the gospel that's specified for this day uh, is from Luke, and it describes the birth of John the Baptist, but that gospel and what comes up in it hardly figures in this cantata libretto. Uh, the text is much more interested in the moment of Jesus' baptism at the hand of John, of course, and in very particular aspects of it. Now, this cantata is from the 1724-25 liturgical year, which means it was based on a chorale, on a hymn, as were all the cantatas in that uh, liturgical year, at least until Bach gave up on the project for reasons we don't know. So as usual, you'll see the first and last stanzas of a well-known hymn presented intact, the first in a big concerted setting here, and the last in a four-part harmonization with doubling instruments. The inner stanzas are, of course, converted one by one uh, to recitative and, recitative and aria poetry, uh, yielding, in this case, aria, recitative, aria, recitative, aria, in the middle between the two chorale stanzas. There are two recitatives, movement three and five, uh, one simple, that is continual only, and one instrumentally accompanied. Uh, the libretto actually gives them closely parallel structures. Each ends with quoted words, and each of those quoted words uh, are words of the deity. And here is where the listener is expected to know scripture, um, because this libretto is not, doesn't have much to do with the gospel of the day, um, it's not that gospel reading that you needed to know. You needed to know a fair amount of scripture, uh, other scripture, to understand the references this cantata was making. So the first of those recitatives, movement three, the words from Herr Sprach, this is my lieber son, he said, this is my dear son, quotes uh, Matthew's gospel, and this is from the narration of Jesus' baptism. No, it's not the day's gospel, but it's obviously invoked by celebrating St. John's Day. These are the words that Matthew reports that God spoke audibly at the moment of Jesus' baptism. Now, actually, only the first line, Jesus my libazon, is directly quoted in gospel. Um, and by the way, you might note that that line, that quoted line, is also part of the original chorale stanza that this recitative text is derived from. That's why it's both in bold and in italics, our, our attempt to notate this. There. It's both from the chorale but also scripture. Um, the rest, what follows in the recit, is a loose paraphrase of other scripture, but it's all in the voice of God. The other recitative, Movement 5, introduces direct speech of Jesus. Get in and all the bells go out into all the world 
and this is a scriptural quotation too. These are words that are spoken as Jesus appears to his disciples just after his resurrection. Here set as an arioso, and this recit and the arioso are for bass voice, uh, the conventional Vox Christi, the voice of Jesus uh, for Bach. So there's two quotations of the voice of God here in these two recits. Voice and sound, in fact, are themes that are strongly emphasized in this libretto. Movement two, mark well and hear, a reference to God's word. Movement three, in words, let his voice be heard, hear his precious teaching. And number four, beginning the Father's voice. There's a secondary emphasis, too, here on visual images in movement three, in words and in pictures, it says, in images, and in number four, the image of the dove. Image, not just the dove, but the image of the dove. Now, there's a reason for the double emphasis here, word and image. The message is that the meaning of baptism in this belief system comes from sound, that is the sound of God's voice, and from sight. And sight's important because it is the way that the believer observes the presence of the Holy Spirit represented by the dove, and you have to see that. So word and sound here uh, in this reading um, are both important together to give you the whole understanding of the whole meaning of the baptism, and of course, uh, to understand the Christian belief in the presence of the Trinity at the baptism. So there's one more significance of the words of Jesus in movement five, the paraphrased scripture here says blessing comes from both baptism and from faith, and this explains the sudden pivot in this libretto to faith, glaube. Number movement six, humankind believed in this grace. Faith and baptism together purified, and then in movement seven, the chorale, faith alone understands. And it's that moment of pivot in Jesus' words that moves um, to the topic of the last couple of movements here. So, uh, so much for by preaching the gospel here, how is all of this reflected musically? This is surprisingly difficult to explain in some cases, but there are some starting points for us. First of all, the chorale melody here is very old. The text is attributed to Martin Luther, in fact. It wasn't originally sung in Luther's own time with this tune, but the tune you heard came very quickly to be sung to this text. That tune is also very old. So both in the text and the tune were understood to be venerable. Now, that often prompted Bach to compose a first movement that sounded old and motet style with no independent instruments, with a so-called cantus firmus presenting the chorale in long notes. Not here. Not here. This is a modern concerto movement. Now, it does present the chorale melody in long notes in the tenor, and that is the voice that the very earliest chorale settings put the, the chorale tune in in a four-part piece. But other voices, but this doesn't really refer to motet. These are freely composed voices. Um, this is a concerto movement with the voices embedded in it. This is one of Bach's most extraordinary opening movements of great complexity and ingeniousness. I'll give you one thing to listen for in particular, and it concerns the instrumentation of this movement and indeed of the whole cantata. Um, instead of dividing his available usual four violins into two first violins and two second violins, that happens in essentially every Leipzig era cantata that we know about. He made a different division, dividing the forces into two soloistic concertato violins and two supporting rucano violins. Two solo violins and two supporting violins. Um, this was unusual. This, by the way, this arrangement 
thoroughly infused box copies, so I had to make them go back and copy back out the parts. Um, this was unusual enough that they didn't know what to do, and they copied all the wrong lines in all the parts, and the parts are actually full of crossed out movements and replacements, because there was no reason for them just flipping through the page of the score to realize how different this was, but these corrections are there, including some from Bob, so this is in fact what Bob had in mind. The opening musical gesture of this movement is unmistakably a so-called French overture, that was the premier French uh, orchestral type of music, uh, characterized, among other things, by the long, short rhythmic pattern, the little dotted figures, yum, ba-dum, 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 happens all the way through. Now, that's interesting enough, but you probably want to ask, why might Bach do that here? Um, there might be a reason. Uh, try this out. At the French court, this French overture originated as royal entrance music, and it kept that association even as it was transplanted out of the courtly context. Composers of church music used the type for its symbolic value. The best known J.S. Bach example that we hear here a couple of years ago is the opening movement of the Advent piece, Nun kommt der Heiden Heiland, Cantata 61. That's for the first Sunday in Advent, and so having a, a royal French entry music, a French overture to uh, announce the advent of Jesus makes a certain amount of uh, symbolic sense. I think it might mean that here, too. John the Baptist is the one that Scripture repeatedly re uh, 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 reports is the one who precedes Jesus, and there might be an image here of a kind of entrance procession of John followed by Jesus. That's the best I can do for you. That's the best I can do for you here. In any event, having argued why this is a French overture, it's really important that this is not a pure French overture. Not at all. It behaves like a Ritornello concerto, like an Italian Ritornello concerto. The syntax of its opening Ritornello is unmistakably Italian. Its formal organization is already characteristic. Um, another striking feature is that it has a concerted soloistic violin line in it, which French overtures are not supposed to have. So the concerted element here is the four voices singing the chorale plus the two concerted violins. And here Bach takes advantage of his choice to have two concerted violins and two Rucano violins. So it's a French overture organized like an Italian concerto. This was the sort of combination of national styles and type that Bach was most interested in, but not him alone. Bach probably learned it and this particular type from the greatest proponent of French overtures with Italian concerto elements, Georg Philip Telemann. Um, we'll note, we can note that in its own time, this sort of stylistic mixture did not meet with everybody's approval. It came with warnings in the critical literature. Johann Adolf Scheibe, writing in 1740, wrote, there is a certain balance to maintain so that one does not overshadow the true disposition and nature of the overture and lapse from a French style of writing into an Italian one and consequently render the style of such a piece confused and disorderly. <laughs> but but Telemann and Bach delighted in seeing how they could do this. There are three arias here in this cantata. Um, I will add, by the way, that for this particular text, uh, we might ask the question, why then make an Italian concerto out of a French overture if the French overture was the point? It may be for the pure opulence of sound here. Think of how important sound is in this libretto. I really think this might be a reference to the most opulent sound Bach can make with his minimal band. The four violins and two oboes in continuo, that is the bare bones uh, church music apparatus, and yet he draws from it this extraordinary sound. I think that's what's going on here, I think. 
So there are three arias. All three kinds of scoring are represented. A continuo aria, an obbligato aria with the two solo violins, and then a full ensemble piece, numbers two, four, and six. Four, of course, three different voices. Number two opens with an injunction to note and hear, melk und hört, melk und hört. Um, and this imperative, melk und hört, is repeated, I counted 22 times, if you count both uh, uh, repetitions of the A, the A, da capo structure, 22 times, and the injunction to note and to hear. Um, the Ritornello opens and closes the A section, of course. There are internal Ritornellos in both the A and B sections, but they're tiny. They're tiny. They're just a measure each before the voice re-enters. Um, it allows for a nearly continuous vo vocal line um, imploring you to mark and to hear. The text is also designed for a very particular kind of setting, and then you should listen for this because it's going to turn out to be useful uh, in understanding the, the last aria. It's designed to, for a very particular kind of aria setting. It opens, of course, with an instrumental ritornello, and then the voice sings the first line which, of text, which is the very opening of the ritornello, and then the voice drops out and the instruments finish the ritornello. So what you get in effect is an instrumental ritornello, and then a second statement of the ritornello begun by voice and ended by instruments. Right? And this little uh, first line that the voice sings and then drops out is known as a motto, and this is the type was known as a motto aria. Um, and the word comes from a heraldry, from the motto, the saying that might be across the top of a coat of arms, which you, which you state in just an isolated way. So you get the ritornello, the motto, and then the real vocal beginning of the piece. Um, keep that in mind, melk und hört. Number four, the second aria calls for the two concerted violins. And this, again, might point to an emphasis on sound the father's voice, of course, is the topic of this aria. Now, this is most unusually organized for a Bach aria. It opens with a full ritornello, as you would expect, and then there are three musical sections, each followed by a ritornello. The last one is the closing ritornello. Each of the sections, in turn, is divided into two parts. So two parts, two parts, two parts, with ritornellos articulating all of them. The division of the text among those three or six parts is really odd. So I'll tell you what it is. Then I'll tell you why I tell you this. It's lines one and two, and then two and three, lines four and five, and then five and seven, and then line five, and then line six and seven. I mean, it, it looks as if it makes no sense, but I think the method becomes evident when you look at the words that start each of those six sections. It turns out to be either words or words referring to father, son, spirit, that we might believe, Glaube, that we might believe in the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit, believe, believe, Trinity. I think that's what Bach is after in this crazy organization of text. I think. Okay? Number six, the last aria, was probably the most challenging for Bach. It, of course, is a paraphrased chorale stanza like the others, but it remains a nine-line poem. The chorale is nine lines long, and the adaptation of this chorale stanza into an aria text and took the formed in, in the librettist hands of simply rewriting, re-paraphrasing, and ending up with a nine-line text, which is way too long for an aria. So Bach has to do something to accommodate so much text. He does it by making three vocal segments, treating lines one through three, four and five, and six and nine. Now, it seems pretty obvious, I guess, but arias don't often work that way. What's really interesting here is the relationship between the voice and the instruments that Bach then builds into this. Voices and instruments are largely separate in this movement for most of the piece. Either the voice is singing alone with continuo, or the instruments are playing. 
but for the most part, not both at the same time. There's only two places where they combine. The line that says, humankind believed, and the line that says, belief, faith, and baptism purified. Again, I think Bach is, lines it up so that only two places to get voice and instruments together underlines the word Glaube, which we talked about is important to the text here. Now, that's unusual enough, but there's another oddity. This, like number four, is a motto aria. Um, the way it works, of course, is an opening ritornello, and then a motto statement, the voice begins, and then the instruments continue, and then the real vocal beginning happens. Except that is what happens in this piece. It doesn't do that. It starts with the motto. It starts with the voice. Notice Michael began, began that movement singing. Almost no Bach arias do that. Almost always you wait for the ritornello. This locks off the opening ritornello. Um, now that combines with a, another curiosity of this piece. Um, there are three vocal segments here. Um, as I said, the three units of text with three ritornellos after each. Um, so both of these first two begin not with the beginning of the ritornello, but with its continuation. So the voice sings, Menschen glaubt auf diese Gnade, dass dir nicht in Sinnen stirbt. And then the instruments come in. There's a reason I'm having trouble singing it, because it's a very vocal opening and a very instrumental continuation, right? And that's one of the ways Bach separates the two. They'll do it better. You'll get a chance to hear it. Um, and that's how it gets presented every time. Voice begins the motto statement, so instruments pick up with the instrumental part. Voice sings a unit, and the ritornello begins with just the instrumental part, so no opening. And then the voice sings again, and the instruments pick up with just the instrumental part, no opening. It's only at the very, very end of this piece do you get to hear the instruments play the entire ritornello, including that vocal statement. It's a stunning moment if you're listening for it um, in that way. I wish I could tell you exactly what that means. I mean, I've given you analytical insight in this piece. It's fascinating in itself. Why did Bach do this for this text? Um, making the final ritornello a goal where you're headed for in this piece rather than your starting point and your rounding off ending point. This may be a situation in which we're wrong to look for a theological or text expressive explanation. It might be a way of dealing musically with the very length of this text. Not every compositional decision is interpretive. Thank We've heard the first performance of Christ unser Herr zum Jordan Kam, BWV7, by the Bloomington Bach Cantata Project on February 26, 2017, at St. Thomas Lutheran Church in Bloomington, Indiana. The music director was James Andrews, and David Rolfing recorded the proceedings. Professor Daniel Malamud, now director of the project, delivered the lecture and kindly shared this performance with us. The BBCP continues to offer six cantatas a year to the entire community at no charge, supported by the Historical Performance and Musicology Departments of the Jacob School of Music, Bloomington Early Music, St. Thomas Church, and by individual donors and volunteers. We're always interested in hearing your thoughts about this podcast. You can find Harmonia on Facebook or leave a comment or question anytime by visiting harmoniaearlymusic.org. 
This has been Harmonia Uncut, and I'm Wendy Gillespie. Thanks so much for joining me. Music